a number of Christians have observed that when we come to the line in the creed that we're studying this morning, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, the, the, the creed seems to slow down. It's as if we, we, we move from, from years, skipping over years of Jesus' life, to focusing on, on days, and then hours. And it's a sober line, is it not? When we think about Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. We've examined in this series, this occasional doctrinal series in the Apostles' Creed, the, the three lines that precede it. You, you'll probably see them there on your insert in the bulletin. We've, we've thought about what it means that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We've thought about what it means that Jesus is the Christ and God's only Son and our sovereign Lord. We've thought about what, what it means for Jesus to have been conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her. But this morning, we want to slow down with the creed and think on these phrases. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The, the goal, the, the aim of this series is to not just think about what the creed says, but especially the biblical underpinnings of the creed. My hope is, is that as we study through this creed alongside our, our series in the, the, the book of Acts, is that we understand more of what we believe and why we believe it. So, so I want to preach to you, not, not the creed, but the truth of the Bible that the creed seeks to summarize. You'll remember that the creed, the Apostles' Creed, was an, an early document. We've used it in the Christian church for, for nearly 1,800 years. But it was originally uh, a, a baptismal formula. So, so a pastor would, would say to a baptismal candidate, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? As they're preparing for their baptism, their response would be, I, I believe. And then they would ask another question. And do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord? And their answer would be, I believe. It was a way for Christians to confess their faith. But when we stand up and confess the creed, when we, when we sing the creed, like we've done this morning, do you, do you know what it means for Jesus to have suffered under Pontius Pilate? What does it mean that we talk about that Jesus was crucified? What did he undergo? What was the, the theological significance in that? Is there any significance to the fact that he died and was buried? Well, all of these things we hope to think about together this morning from God's Word. So let me invite you to, to go ahead and pull out that insert with the creed printed on it, but also to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 47. We're going to be studying through uh, Mark's 15th chapter, and as it parallels nicely these phrases from the creed. And the, the structure of the sermon is simply going to follow those statements there in the creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate crucified, dead, and buried. So here's the outline for you note-takers here this morning. If you're taking notes, here's what the outline is. Jesus suffered to save us. Jesus was crucified to bear our curse. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus was buried so that we might believe. I hope to unpack each of those truths as we work our way through Mark chapter 15. And I don't remember if I gave the page number, but if I didn't, it's on page 852 of the Bible provided. Feel free to turn there. I want us just to walk through Mark's gospel together. I'm going to give each of those points. If you missed those four points, don't worry. I'll give each of them before we move into our 
the, the new section. So, for example, here we are going to consider Jesus suffered to save us. And we're especially looking here at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Now, as we begin to read these verses here in a moment, we need to remember that we're dropping in on the tail end of Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four Gospels, these biographies of Jesus. We're dropping into chapter 15, just before the last chapter, chapter 16. A lot has transpired. Mark has been chronicling Jesus' life. And from one vantage point, we could say that Jesus' life was marked by suffering through the whole course. Right? He was, he was rejected. He, he suffered rejection at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He was misunderstood by his family. He was rejected by the Jewish religious leaders, and he suffered that rejection as well. Jesus suffered many things throughout the course of Mark's gospel. In fact, Jesus understood that the trajectory of his life would be one of suffering, even climaxing, climaxing and suffering in his death. So three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Jesus knew that his course was suffering. And he knew that his suffering was meant to accomplish something. That he was going to save his people from their sins. So Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was going to pay the price to rescue from slavery to sin his people. It was Jesus' understanding that he would suffer in order to save his people. He knew his life was headed to this moment. Let's take a look now at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, where we're reminded that Jesus really did suffer under Pontius Pilate. Follow along as I read those verses now. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away to be, and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to re release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. 
Now, I don't intend to offer a full exposition of these verses. That's ordinarily what we do in Sunday mornings. We're working through the book of Acts and we're exposing all, all the verses that are set before us. Rather, I, I simply mean to show you how these verses undergird the truth that's summarized in the creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we begin by noting that Jesus, he suffers an unjust trial under Pontius Pilate, right? The, the Jews had, had gathered together. The night before, they had had this mock trial, this really uh, unjust ceremony where they're attempting to accuse Jesus and get him to um, reveal some blasphemous truth. And Jesus uh, doesn't. Jesus is innocent and perfectly innocent in that. And, and so they, they gather together in the morning and they come to a conclusion, reach his conclusion, and they immediately rush Jesus to Pilate. Under the guise, that, look, this guy's claiming to be king. He's claiming to be king. He's a, he's a threat to Roman rule. And Pilate, he entertains... This, uh, these trumped up charges that the chief priests have brought against Jesus. Pilate examines Jesus himself. He, he wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? Are, are you who they're, they're claiming that you profess to be? And Jesus, he, um, his answer to Pilate's question is, is somewhat mysterious, isn't it? He says, you have said so. He, he plays on, on Pilate's words. You know, if he had answered in unambiguous terms, he would have faced immediate suffering and sentencing. John's Gospel has this longer conversation between Jesus and Pilate where we, we learn that Jesus admits that his kingdom, he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. And of course, that conversation reveals that Jesus was no immediate threat to Pilate or to Roman rule. And therefore, all the charges should be dismissed and dropped, but they're not. Mark, he almost portrays Pilate as concerned for Jesus when in verse 4, Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they raise against you. Standing there, Jesus is the, the innocent one. As a sheep before his shears is silent. Yet Jesus makes no reply. Pilate's amazed by this. Jesus knew from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, that was a, a suffering servant song. He, he knew that he was to be the, the suffering servant who was oppressed and afflicted and yet... He opened not his mouth. And in verses 6 to 15, Mark, he shifts his focus slightly from this unjust trial to this unjust bargain and offer. And Jesus suffers this, this wrong bargaining and offering. There's this tradition that exists between the, the Jewish people and, and Pilate that Pilate would release uh, a prisoner to them. On the one hand, Jesus has been wrongly accused of trying to take the Roman throne as king. Pilate knows it. On the other hand, there's, there's this man named Barabbas, one who's actually guilty of insurrection and murder, of actually attempting to overthrow Roman rule. And Pilate knows that too. Pilate clearly, he, he underestimated the religious leaders. They have already worked to position the crowd to secure their desired outcome. And Jesus, he suffers this unjust offer. If you, if you have an innocent man standing before you, then you release him. That's the just thing to do. You don't, you don't offer him as a bargaining chip. Pilate appears shocked when the people don't actually want to see Jesus freed. He almost argues in Jesus' defense there in verse 14 when he asks, Why? What evil has he done? And note, note that in Pilate's question, he proclaims Jesus' innocence. The crowd gives no reply. They couldn't. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was Sinless even. Even Peter, who followed Jesus around for 
three years, who, who ate meals with him, who probably slept in the same places as Jesus, who had intimate contact with Jesus. With, with that kind of situation, you, you begin to recognize someone's sins. Well, Peter, Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, that Jesus committed no sin. Jesus was sinless, and yet he suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under a man who loved the crowd more than he loved justice. And there's a lesson in there for all of us. Pilate was in too deep at this point, wasn't he? And so in the words of verse 15, Jesus was scourged. This is an act of, of beating a man's back with a leather whip with different materials attached to the end of it. And sadly, this was common for all who were set to face crucifixion. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate in the sense that he was flogged or scourged under his rule. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate in the sense that he was unjustly condemned to death. He suffered under Pontius Pilate in the sense that what happened in verses 16 to 20 happened under Pilate's rule. In verses 16 to 20, Jesus endures a, a, cor- a coronation that mocked his claim to be king. Right? He's, he's dragged to a place where this battalion of soldiers, probably somewhere between 200 and 600 men, Enjoy ridiculing this one condemned man. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was scorned, spat upon, and struck. The esteemed 19th century Baptist theologian J.L. Reynolds once described what was taking place in this ceremony. He wrote, When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, He pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns, a reed, and a purple robe, and nailing him to a cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire, That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. The Lord Jesus is a king. And our king suffered under Pontius Pilate. When we confess that, we're confessing all that we read here in Mark 15. That Jesus suffered scourging and shame injustice, and finally, crucifixion. But Pilate, in the creed, and in the New Testament, is also a historical marker for Jesus' suffering. Right? The the creed mentions Pilate, and that reminds us that Jesus is a real man who really lived in time and in space. Jesus' suffering climaxed under the reign of Pontius Pilate, but as we said, it did not begin there. Think back to the time before we meet Pilate in the, the Gospel of Mark. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is suffering and agonizing over the impending doom of God's wrath on the cross. It's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. In reality, the whole of Jesus' life was one of humiliation, of sympathizing with and suffering for sinners like us. Think about His life as this perfectly holy, innocent, sinless one. In the whole course of his life, he was constantly suffering sin, others sinning against him. 
term of suffering has a, a larger space and time in view. Christ's humiliation, it consists in His being born and that in a low condition. He was made under the law. And He underwent the miseries of this life. He suffered the miseries that we experience in this life. Jesus' suffering encompasses so much. But why? Why did Jesus have to suffer? How does this help our faith? How does it strengthen us? How should we respond? Well, Jesus suffered for our sins and He suffered to save us, to stand in our place and to bear our shame. He suffered so that we might know that we have a sympathetic and faithful high priest in the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Our Savior, He understands our suffering. He went through emotional, psychological, and soul-wrenching suffering as He wrestled the thought of being forsaken by God. He went through relational suffering as His disciples abandoned Him and left Him all alone. He went through physical suffering as He was beaten by Pilate, Pilate's men, and nailed to the cross. There's no kind of suffering that you endure or may endure that our Savior has not Himself endured. There's a solidarity that exists between our Savior and us in suffering. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. And thus, having lived a life of perfect obedience through suffering, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. But how does the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate help our faith? Pontius Pilate held his position from about 26 to 36 AD. His rule is confirmed by both Christian and non-Christian sources. Descriptions around his rule acknowledge that he crucified Jesus Christ. The fact that both the scriptures and the creed remind us that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate remind us that we have a historic faith. Right? The sufferings of Christ are historic events. Our faith rests upon God and His acts in history. No thoughtful historian would deny the existence of Jesus of Nazareth and His suffering under Pontius Pilate. It's too well recorded. We have a real Savior who really lived in history and who really suffered to save us. Christian, there is a real foundation for your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that through this series, you're learning what it is Christians believe. And I hope that you will reckon with this man who is actually at the center of history. What will you do with Jesus and his sufferings? Will he be the source of your salvation? If not, then who will save you from God's wrath against your sin? Jesus' suffering. It reminds us too that the whole character of the church and our lives as Christians will follow the pattern of the Savior. Jesus told His disciples that they were not greater than their Master and that they would follow in His way. So that's our calling, to share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus had to suffer and then enter into His glory, as He said in Luke chapter 24, verse 26. This is the path and pattern of our lives as well. Just as Jesus went through the cross before receiving the crown, so too we will suffer before we know the fullness of our salvation. Friends, brothers and sisters, though this life will be filled with sufferings and sorrows, in the end, it will be filled with singing. The sufferings of Christ are the soul of the songs of the saints in glory. That's what Michael read to us from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, before we gave our praise to God.
They sang of Christ's suffering with praise on their lips. Jesus suffered to save us. His suffering strengthens us in our earthly suffering. For we know that one day it will end. Well, Jesus did not merely stand in the place of His people, bearing their shame and suffering as Isaiah 53 3 tells us, but He also stood in the place of His people, bearing their curse. So let's turn now and consider our second point. Jesus was crucified to bear our curse. Follow along now as I read Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 32. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Again, the, the goal here is not to offer a full exposition of these verses, but rather to show how they demonstrate the teaching that Jesus was crucified and what it means. Verse 20 told us that Jesus was being led away to be crucified. And verse 21 picks up the journey to the crucifixion. The cross, the, uh, the instrument of crucifixion has become commonplace in our world. It's a decoration on buildings and bodies, accessories on our ears and necks. But in the Roman world, the cross was a cursed symbol. The Romans set up crosses in prominent places as a warning to all who contemplated crime or insurrection. Cross, punishment by the cross, was so fierce and cruel that Roman citizens were normally exempt from enduring it. A crucifixion would normally last somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. The goal was to crucify this man and make him experience the most pain possible. Sometimes, as they nailed him to this cross, they would give him a little seat to sit upon so that when he lifted himself up to breathe, he would be able to live longer. A man would not typically die by loss of blood, but by asphyxiation. It was a cruel instrument designed to bring about the worst punishment possible. The cross was usually assembled using two wooden beams, a horizontal beam and a vertical beam. And a condemned criminal would often have to carry that horizontal cross beam to the place of his execution. And by verse 22, we know that Jesus made it to the place of his crucifixion. We're told that Jesus, he was brought outside this city, outside the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, where he was being executed. Mark is communicating to us that this place was marked by death. And in verse 23, you'll notice that Jesus refused the wine mixed with myrrh. He is in complete control and aware of what choices he's making even on that cross. 
During the course of his crucifixion, the gospel writer Mark, he wants us to keep our attention on the fulfillment of the prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus, especially Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Remember that in verse 24, you'll see we're told that they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Listen to what Psalm 22, verses 17 and 18 says. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Everything that we're reading about here is to, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, in accordance with the Scriptures. Verses 26 to 31, as Jesus hangs on the cross, a number of people mock Him. So in verse 26, we see Pilate's mockery through that charge that's placed upon that cross. The, the two criminals next to Jesus and those who passed by joined in the mockery again. Fulfilling the promise of Psalm 22, verses 2 and 7, and Psalm 109, verse 25. In the latter, that text, Psalm 109, verse 25, we read, I am the object of scorn to my accusers, and when they see me, they wag their heads. And then in verse 31, the chief priests join in mocking God's one true high priest, who is offering the most precious sacrifice on behalf of his people, himself. If Jesus were to save them himself, then he could save no one. No, he had to remain on that cross and bear our curse for sin. It's what the justice of God's law required. But, but how is that cross associated with the curse? The Old Testament tells us in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that cursed is any man who is hung on a tree. The very nature of Jesus' crucifixion communicates that he is cursed by God. And in his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul, he unpacks the theological significance of the cursed and crucified Savior for us. So, keeping one finger here, if you can, in Mark 15, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We especially want to look at verses 13 and 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 973, I believe, of the Bibles provided. As we prepare to read these, these few verses and, and meditate on them for just a moment, we need to know what Paul has just said. Paul has just made plain... That apart from Jesus Christ, all are under God's curse. That's what sin does. Sin brings consequences for our sin. It's our rebellion against God. Our breaking of His law. It brings us under God's curse. And for the wages, that which is justly due to sin, is death. Take a look at what Paul says as he unpacks Christ's cross in light of curse there in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There's endless hope in these verses, but they are not without the heaviness of the curse that's present in them too. When we read those first two words in verse 13, Christ redeemed, we should understand that Jesus frees and delivers us from the curse of the law by paying the price for sin for us. But how has He done it? Do you see it there in verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The law demands that sin be punished. God is a just God and He will not let sin go unpunished. Every sin without exception must be punished. So on the cross, Jesus made a substitutionary sacrifice for the purpose of satisfying God.
God's wrath toward us. Our sin must be penalized and punished. There's a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death, the Scriptures tell us. And what Paul is describing here is that Jesus Christ took the punishment, the penalty, the curse for sin upon Himself for all of those who would have returned from their sin and placed their faith in Him. And notice that Paul, he almost always claims a personal stake when he's talking about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he says there? He says, Christ redeemed us. Paul is including himself in that group of people who are redeemed. Earlier in his letter, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul declared that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. How about you? Do you claim a stake in Christ's crucifixion? When you read about Jesus' crucifixion, do you say to yourself, He did that for me. He was cursed for me. Friend, brothers and sisters, when we read of Jesus' crucifixion, let us not stand at a distance from it, but remember that He was crucified and therefore cursed for us. Let us remember that in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins, not His, our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus was crucified to bear our curse. When we confess that Jesus was crucified for us, we confess that he's, He bore the judicial curse of God for our sins, against our sins. And the manner of Christ's sacrifice fulfills the requirements of God's law. We are assured that because Jesus was cursed on the cross for us, we are assured that our sins, not in part but the whole, have been nailed to the cross. And that we bear them no more because Jesus bore all of them. Once Jesus takes our sin, He takes them all away. And the immediate response that we ought to give to this news, as we, even as we make this confession, is that we ought to give thanks and praise to God for all that He's done for us in Jesus Christ. We ought to remember our share in the crucifixion of Christ. Believe that Jesus bore our curse. The crucifixion of Jesus, it's at the center of the Christian faith. There's a reason why Christians wear crosses. It's no wonder that the creed seems to slow down and meditate deeply upon this. The cross of Jesus is the center of the Christian faith. It's also the center of Christian proclamation. Paul himself said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 23, that we cre- preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Every sermon from this pulpit needs to include the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is at the heart of our faith. And even though it's folly to Jews and Gentiles, it is the wisdom of God. The cross was the one thing that Jews and Gentiles agreed upon. They agreed that it was foolishness. Jews could not believe in a crucified Messiah. And it was strange and silly to Gentiles to think that a king would be crucified. But it is the wisdom of God. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you make of the cross? Is it folly to you? Is it foolishness? To you, don't think yourself wiser than God. Believe that Jesus was cursed for you and for your sins. Believe that it's God's wisdom to spare you from your sins. Let me encourage you to make the words of Frederick Whitfield the words of your heart. I love the cross of Jesus. It tells me what I am. A vile and guilty creature saved only through the Lamb. No righteousness, no merit, 
No beauty can I plead, but in the cross of Jesus, my title, there I read. Friend, see in Jesus' cursed crucifixion your title to salvation. We should recognize, receive, and rejoice the beauty of the cross. Turn back to, to Matthew, to Mark, sorry. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 852. In these verses, we're thinking now about our second point. We're thinking now about the fact that Jesus died so that we might live. That's our third point. Jesus died so that we might live. Follow along as I read verses 33 to 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. How do these verses display the truth of the creed that Jesus died? Well, in verse 33, the storm clouds of judgment and death gather. A supernatural darkness sets in around noon and lifts somewhere around three in the afternoon. This event should bring to our minds something of the ninth plague in Exodus in Egypt. Remember when the, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God had purposed to set, him, set them free and He sent plague after plague. Well, the, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness and Moses tells us, he describes it, it was a darkness that could be felt. And then came the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn sons of all in Egypt except those who had the blood of a lamb spread across the doorposts of their home. Only those households were spared. Only those sons would live. But only because the lamb died. Well, it's Passover week in Jerusalem here. And Jesus is the lamb who was slain to set sons free from the curse of sin and death. Jesus, the Son of God, died so that we might live. And we must be clear, He was not shielded from the wrath of God. He endured the wrath of God. And that's why He utters with a loud voice this cry of desolation, sometimes called the, the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. He sees Himself as the Messianic and Davidic King who suffers to save His people. To be forsaken is to be abandoned. And this forsakenness was not merely the, the presence of God's, not merely the absence of God's presence in Jesus' earthly life, but also the positive presence 
of the wrath of God the Father being poured out on Christ for sin. For those three hours of darkness, Jesus endured the hell that you and I deserve for our sins. But not just our hell, the hell of all of God's people. Those three hours were three hours of contracted and concentrated judgment and comprehensive judgment as well for the sins of God's people. Because Jesus was forsaken by God, we don't have to be. He died under the eternal wrath of God so that we might live eternally in the blessed presence of God. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to consider Jesus' death yet again. Friend, God is angry that you have mocked His kingship. Your sin against Him, your breaking His law, is a rejection of His rule. And the truth is, is that we have all sinned against God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have been made to reflect His perfect holiness, but we have not lived up to His righteous standard. And so, His commands have been broken, and He must punish those who have broken His commands. But apart from Jesus, we're all in danger of facing that just and eternal wrath. Having sinned against the eternal God, we deserve to face His eternal wrath. But in love, God the Father sent His one and only most beloved Son to die so that we might live. Jesus gave His life up on the cross. He was crucified and He died and He was buried. But three days later, God the Father raised Him from the grave, vindicating and proving to us all that those who believe and trust in His Son will be spared from God's righteous judgment. There's actually another sign in our text as well that Jesus is open to the way of forgiveness to God the Father. You see it there in verse 38, the incredible proof that this forsakenness came to an end and that Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God against repenting sinners is right there. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a supernatural act of God. Because of man's sin, God had to erect barriers for men coming too close into His holy presence. So in the temple, a series of curtains were erected, serving as, as walls, protecting people from God. But here Mark tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus has opened the way to eternal life with God. Jesus died so that we might live. And there's a, another sign that Jesus died so that we might live in our text as well. Mark records several witnesses to Jesus' death. He specifically records the reaction of that one centurion. Just before Jesus breathes his last and lets himself die, he offers this loud cry, and the centurion exclaims, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This man is now giving a Christian confession, displaying that he has eternal life in Jesus Christ because he believes that Jesus was God's Son given for sinners. Friend, do you believe that Jesus was given for your sins? Turn from them and trust in him. Make this centurion's confession your confession. Confess and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who gave His life to rescue you from your sins. And Mark wants his readers to understand by all these witnesses present that Jesus' death is a certifiable fact. There were many witnesses to His public death. And so he records the, the presence of others. When we confess that Jesus died, we're confessing that God 
is just and truthful. He told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 that sin would lead to death. And Jesus' death shows us that. When we confess that Jesus died, we're, we're confessing that Jesus was paid the wages for our working in sin. And yet that we have eternal life through him. There was no other way for that payment to be made but through Jesus' death. When we confess that Jesus died, we're confessing that we've been reconciled to God and given eternal life. Listen to what Romans 5.10 says. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Brothers and sisters, we've been reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, Jesus' death is motivation for sanctification. Paul tells us that when Christ died, we died with Him. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection has broken the power of sin, though it has not removed its presence from this world and from our lives. Still, because Jesus has died and been raised, since Jesus has redeemed us by His cross, we are free. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Like the children of Israel are no longer enslaved in Egypt. Jesus has set us free from being slaves to sin. And in the strength of the Spirit of Jesus, you can resist sin and Satan. There's another lesson that we learn from Jesus' crucifixion and His death. It tells us what God thinks of sin. It tells us that sin needs to be put to death. Do we take God's perspective on sin? Do we want to put sin to death too? John Owen rightly said, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, let us remember the cross of Jesus as we battle with sin day to day. As we walk with one another and confess our sins to one another, let us remind one another of the cross and all that Jesus accomplished there. Let us offer ourselves in service to the Savior instead of to sin. As Paul says in Romans 6, verses 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, let us be motivated by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to put sin to death. Jesus, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, and He died. And the creed also echoes the teaching of the Bible when it reminds us that Jesus was buried. So let's turn to our fourth and final point. Jesus was buried so that we might believe. Follow along now as I read Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him 
in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I trust that you can notice that these verses carefully chronicle the burial of Jesus. It's like watching a chain of evidence being passed from one person to the next. So it's finally put in the box and put away. Verse 37 announced Jesus' death. But in these verses, we watch the dead body of Jesus move from the cross to the grave. So in verse 43, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea asks for the body of Jesus. In verse 44, Pilate expresses surprise to hear Jesus' death. He asks for confirmation. And in verse 45, confirmation is given that Jesus is dead. And Joseph is granted what? The corpse. In verse 46, we see that Joseph of Arimathea, he's, he's treating the dead body of Jesus like a dead body. He wraps it in a linen cloth and he puts it in the place where dead bodies went in that day and age. In a tomb. Jesus' body is buried. And Mark, he goes one step further in noting noting that many of the same witnesses of Jesus' death were there watching His burial. That's why the the women are listed once again. Mark, he, he compiles a lot of evidence to prove that Jesus was dead and buried. Because he wants his readers to understand that Jesus really was dead and buried. In fact, all four Gospels go to great lengths to communicate this truth. And notice that when Mark notes in verse 46 that the stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb, it very much feels like the door has closed and that this burial is the end of Jesus. I appreciate the way, the way that one children's author recounted this part of Jesus' burial. She, she wrote... They hauled a huge stone in front of the door of the tomb so that no one could get in or out. We know that three days later, Jesus would miraculously rise from the dead, but not before His dead body was buried in the heart of the earth. The final detail of the women identifying Jesus where where Jesus' body was laid is significant. Mark wants his readers to know that they knew exactly where they were going on Easter morning. They saw his, bur- his body buried in that tomb. They, they weren't confused. They didn't turn up the wrong tomb. No, they knew exactly where Jesus' body was laid. They followed Jesus. They watched him die. They followed his body all the way to the tomb where it was laid. Jesus was buried. Jesus' burial shows us that he really was dead. And Jesus was buried in fulfillment of the scriptures too. In that suffering servant song in Isaiah 53, 9, we're told that this suffering servant would have a grave with the rich. And so he was given a grave by a rich man in his death. And Joseph of Arimathea. Now, if you have been a part of the Christian church for some time, or perhaps if you've experienced other traditions, perhaps you've been at a Roman Catholic church or an Orthodox church or other Protestant churches, at this point in the creed, some Christians append or add another line to the creed. Uh, They they confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then they add that He descended into hell. Or, they put it this way, that He descended into Hades or that He descended to the dead. So we, you'll notice there, your, your insert, we don't use that line here at ABC for a number of reasons. But many Christians do use that as part of their confession of the Apostles' Creed. The truth is, is that phrase was not originally part of the Creed. In fact, it wasn't added until sometime in the 4th century, and that it only slowly and gradually grew to use in Christian churches over time. 
you, you'll have noticed that I actually gave you three different possibilities of that confessional line. Uh, that he descended into hell is the worst translation of the Greek, and it's actually a mistranslation of the Latin. Uh, that he descended into Hades is only a slightly better translation, and that he descended to the dead, in my estimation, is the best translation. A lot of ink has been spilled on that subject, and I'm only going to give you my bottom line on this matter. Uh, I'd be willing to talk with you further about what has commonly come to be known as the descent clause at the door after the service, if you really want to pursue it. But here's the bottom line, insofar as I can see it. It was not originally a part of the creed. It cannot mean that Jesus descended into hell to further suffer for our sins, because on the cross, Jesus himself said, it is finished, John 19.30. It cannot mean that Jesus was in hell, for in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, he told the thief on the cross next to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a New Testament reference to being with God. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus also said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, it was Jesus' full expectation that though his soul would be separated from his body at death, that's what happens for every human, though his soul would be separated from his body at death, he would be received into his Father's presence. Moreover, it is the full expectation of every Christian believer that at death we will be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. You'll remember that this was actually in our Acts series. It was Stephen's expectation when he was martyred for Jesus in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. That the best way to understand that line of the creed, uh, it, he descended to the dead, should it be used, is to understand that as a statement that underscores what has already been said. And to say again that Jesus really died. So think about it, in the four points of this sermon, these four points I've tried to communicate to you, I've been actually artificially keeping these subjects separate, right? Jesus' suffering, his crucifixion, his, uh, his death and his burial, they're all connected, aren't they? When we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we're saying that Jesus suffered and died under him. When we say that Jesus died by crucifixion, that was the means of his death. And when we say that Jesus died, but we're communicating that he breathed his last we say Jesus died and he was buried. That's what happens when you die. Jesus' body descended to the dead. The place where the dead bodies go. The tomb is a place where you bury the dead. The creed at this point is hammering Jesus' death. And appending that line simply underscores the fact that Jesus really is dead. I think as a comfort for us as Christians, things ought to encourage us as we reflect upon Jesus' death and burial. Is that the path that Jesus goes through in his death and eventually his resurrection is the same path that we as believers will traverse through at our death. This is a deep comfort to us. Our Savior has gone through death before us. And he has made it safe for us. In death, we are not dying for our sins, but from our sins. As faithful believers have recognized in the past, at our death, we die to sinning. What a glorious thought. We die and we sin no more. We enter into eternal life. As the saints in Mark 15 observed Jesus' death and burial, so too we should be ready to observe and attend funerals and gravesides of our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. We should mourn their deaths and we should celebrate their lives lived unto Christ. 
We should give thanks that they are free from all worldly suffering and free from sin and safely resting in Christ. It's a good and Christian thing to do to mark the death of a saint with grief and gratitude. The funeral of a believer is a good opportunity to remind ourselves that the grave will not have the final say. One day, our dear Savior will raise us up from our graves in glory, just as He was raised up in His. For as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49 reminds us, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We too will have glorified bodies like Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude, let us draw comfort from Jesus' suffering, from His crucifixion, His death, and even His burial. Let us consider and celebrate what Christ has accomplished for us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and remember His death. Our salvation has been secured by His suffering. The curse and condemnation that we deserve has been removed by His crucifixion. His death, burial, and subsequent resurrection has secured eternal life for all who believe in Him. Consider these words on the death of Christ from the good Dr. Ryle. In the instant that our Lord drew His last breath, the work of atonement for a world's sin was accomplished. The ransom for sinners was at length paid. The kingdom of heaven was thrown fully open to all believers. All the solid hope that mortal men may enjoy about their souls may be traced to the cross. Praise God that Jesus suffered to save us. That He was cursed and crucified for us. That He died so that we might live and that he was buried and rose again. And that we will too when he returns and comes again. Let's pray about these things now together. Let's pray.